I probably thought at the time I was making valuable contributions to understandings of that. It's sort of just gathering dust on a shelf at home. say that Dr. Alan Manning is a labor economist, labor economist. He's a professor of economics at the London School of Economics, who has been a strong, strong contributor to the community of labor economists and to labor economics as a uh, field. He's made uh, many, many seminal and important contributions through his research to the, our understanding of the performance of labor markets under different levels of competition, as well as uh, different sources of uh, imperfections in those labor markets, uh, including asymmetric information. In this week's episode of Mixtape the Podcast, I had a chance to talk with Dr. Manning about a new paper of his in the Journal of Human Resources entitled The Urban Wage Premiums in Imperfect Labor Markets, co-authored with Hirsch, Jan, and Oberfinter. The study used German administrative data and documented both the presence of a wage premium for Germans living in urban areas, as well as an explanation that the wage premium for Germans living in urban areas was due not merely to spatial agglomerations that can enhance worker productivity, as was suggested by other authors, but also due to more firm competition for hiring workers. It's a pleasure to hear Dr. Manning share with me not only about this study, but also about labor economics over several decades and the popularity and the lack of popularity within economics at large for topics like imperfect, imperfect labor markets. Thank you for joining Mixtape, the podcast. I'm your host, Scott Cunningham. So, Alan, it is my uh, distinct pleasure to, to, to meet you and, and have you on this podcast. Uh, thank you so much for giving me your, your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, can, can you, before we get into your career, I, I wanted to just kind of set the stage a little bit and just tell me, if you can just tell us, for the listener's sake, your name, your title, and where you're currently employed and what your job is. Yeah, so um, I'm Alan Manning. I'm, I'm a professor of economics in the economics department at the London School of Economics, and my specialty is labor market economics. Okay. How would you just, if you were at a party and you had to tell somebody what, what you, what you just spend your days doing and they're not an economist, well, how would you describe it to them? Um, I tell them, you know, I, I, I'm interested in things like kind of wage inequality and unemployment and how we can make our labor market sort of work for everybody. Oh, okay. Great. Great. Uh, so wh where did you grow up? So I grew up in a town you would almost certainly never have heard of, um, called a place called Welling Garden City, which is has a population about 40,000. It's about 25 miles uh, north of London. It has a slightly unusual history because it was a planned town in 1920, mm -hmm. but has a totally unremarkable present, really. Oh, yeah. So what's a planned town? What is that? So there was this thing in the early 20th century called the Garden City Movement. I think actually some people in America were also into it a bit. And 
Do you think the quality of housing was very poor in many industrial cities at the time? Mm. And the idea was to have a, a sort of, it's an early example of urban planning, really, that you would have a town in which there were residential areas that were kept separate from industrial areas, um, but it was relatively easy for people to get to work. So the idea is they would live and work in the, in the same town yeah. and the housing would be higher quality. So everyone would have, it was a garden city. Every house had a garden. Right. Um, the roads all had lots of trees and stuff, which was pretty unusual at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What was it like growing up as a kid there? What, what, what kind of stuff did you do? Um, well, I think when you say the trees, you know, the, the roads had lots of trees on them. That doesn't, isn't the most exciting thing when you're, you know, a kid growing up. So I wouldn't, you know, it was fine, but it was really, unre- you know, unremarkable. I yeah. Think. What were your hobbies as a little kid, like, like grade school and, and high school? Um, well, I liked playing, um, you know, football, um, you know, soccer to, to, to you. Um and those kind of things but um which team did you support growing up um i was one of those horrible kids that supported whoever was winning at the time which was a team called leeds united uh, which is nowhere near where i grew up Uh um but of course that's a big mistake because mean reversion tells us that they may be successful now but they're not going to be very unlikely to be for the duration of your life do you still support a, a football team um, sort of. I now sort of support sort of Arsenal, which is a London team, which is sort of the neighbourhood where I live. And that's really oh. through my, my, my kids who are sort of fanatical Arsenal fans. And then I've yeah. sort of gone along with them. Yeah. I uh, went through a fanatical football phase last year because I went through a fanatical Ted Lasso phase. And uh, the TV show Ted Lasso became obsessed with a fake uh, football team and now uh, it's kind of died off a little bit now I'm trying to get really excited into it but it seems like it's a neat culture you, I bet having it having this neighborhood uh, this neighborhood team that you sort of grow up and it seems like I don't know if we have that exactly in the U.S. the same emotions of it yeah I mean I can't pretend I can get very emotional like my my sons you know if the team loses Arsenal loses they are you know they are in a bad move about mood about it whereas yeah. i'm kind of more oh well you know it's sort yeah. of, it happened so I, I, that's probably because you know i haven't got that sort of deep roots from childhood of you know caring about this team I right, right 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 so 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 what drew you to economics um or is that as per, i guess first you were at oxford from 81 to 85 is that where you became interested in economics um, well, in the British education system, you specialise much, much earlier than in the American one. So actually, I was an undergraduate in Cambridge from sort of 1978. To oh, right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, the degree I was doing was economics. And oh. basically, that was not entirely, but, you know, 75, 80% economics from year one. But I can't, you know, if you ask me why I decided to get into it, um, you know, again, in the UK educational system, we specialise very early. At age 16, I had to choose between four subjects, history, maths, chemistry and economics. And I decided to drop economics and then said, oh, well, I'll study it at university. But I can't pretend there was any, you know, any rhyme or reason to it, really. Right. right. So was there a point where economics actually sort of caught your heart a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I did, you know, come to think, well, actually, this is quite important to people's lives and this matters to people. And if you, you know, you, you think about, well, you kind of want to import, you know, improve people's lives, that this is, you know, this is a good way to, way to do it. So I think I grew into it yeah. um, and found that it sort of suited me rather than I knew that all from the beginning. Is that because you have sort of a sensibility that was predates economics that you sort of did think about, well, it's really, you know, equity and the well-being of people is really of primary importance. And I want to work on those things. Is, is that what you're? I don't think that was the origin. I'd like to say it was, but I don't think it was. You know, I, I kind of liked maths. But I also kind of liked history, which involved writing. And so a subject that combined, you know, those two things, economics seemed to fit, fit the bill. So it was just, you know, that is, is sort of, I think, the reason why I did it rather than what I thought it could actually do. Yeah. Yeah. So at Oxford, 81 to 85, I'm curious what your what your training was like back then. How, how was it? How is it similar to and how is it different from what you see students getting at LSC now, for instance? Um, well, it was much, much more disorganized, um, you know, than it is, is now. So it consisted of then a sort of a two year master's program mm. and then which involved quite a big dissertation. And then you did, completed your PhD in another in, in another year, basically. Mm. And, you know, you would have to do courses, usual thing, micro, macro, econometrics. But um, the exams would be set, not necessarily be set by the people who gave the lectures. You would have, you know, your classes, the sort of the small group teaching would be with other, you know, other uh, people completely. It was all sort of, you know, kind of rather, rather random. Right, right, right. So versus now, what's it like at LSE now? Well, it would be much more like, I mean, it would be like a US, um, you know, a US model. You have, you know, you know, you have two years of taught courses. You know, the people teaching the courses will be setting the exams. It's sort of quite production line. Um, you know, it, it, it's much better in most ways but I think it probably also it, it forces people down a particular track in a way that in my day it, it was sort of done much um, much less. So what do you end up do you specialized in labor pretty much immediately? No I've never taken a course in labor economics. Oh in interesting what did you specialize in? So, so I sort of started really in economic sort of theory so my advisor was Jim Merleys who was sort of a theorist yeah and um you know who's sort of doing information economics so that's sort of what I did it was information economics is applied to the labor market it was um for example there was the period when there was this idea called implicit contract. Everyone was worried about very high unemployment and why this was, why wages were rigid, rigid and things. Mm. And a very popular view at you know, the time was that sort of there was implicit contracts between workers and firms right. and there, you know, and also there was asymmetric information. So I sort of, right. that was my training was entirely theoretical. 
Right, 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 right. But it, you had you wrote a dissertation that was labor oriented with regard. Yeah, to yeah, it was. So I sort of decided I kind of wanted to get in into that. Um, so this was the early eighties. You know, this was you know the biggest uh, recession since you yeah. know the Great Depression um, in the U.S. as well as the U.K. Unemployment in the U.K. went to like you know fifteen percent. Um, you know this. You know that sort of made me what drew me to be interested in in that right right so you were thinking uh i'm living in the middle of a massive recession i'm going to and so just the topic of of worker unemployment became something that just was very salient that you were wanting to work on so did you end up writing a dissertation on recessions and and things of that nature no, it was very, very, I mean, although I probably thought at the time I was making valuable contributions to understandings of that, um, I sort of, it's sort of just gathering dust on a shelf at home, the physical copy of my thesis. And I think I might be slightly embarrassed to open it up and actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh so, so well, then tell me the trajectory that happened after you left. So you end up getting it. You eventually end up back at, at LSE. It's not too long, or you end up at LSE. It doesn't take a terribly long time before you end up there. What was what ends up happening after you leave Oxford? Yeah. So my first job actually uh, was at another part of the University of London called Birkbeck College, which you may never have heard of. Heard um, it's sort of. It's a college that specialised in sort of part-time evening education. That's sort of what it did. Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, so it had a kind of small economics department. So that was my first job. So I spent five years there. Okay. Um, and then moved to the LSE. What was that like? What was it like at that university? At, at that period, it was, it was fantastic, actually. Um, it was a kind of small department. It was a relatively young department. Actually, we had its... 50th birthday party last week um there were a group a small group of us who were all joined around the same uh, the same time young sort of faculty um who were all really good and so it was a great experience you sort of taught in the evenings but that meant you had basically the days free for for research so it was a great um a great first job that's great so uh so now, imperfect labor markets. That you, so, I guess there's uh, uh, you know a little bit of a germ of that with you telling me that you're interested in asymmetric information, uh, and and then you work on labor markets. It, it's immediately clear you're going to be thinking about problems generally in labor markets. So I was kind of curious. Um, can you tell me a little bit about? what a listener should think when they hear someone say imperfect labor markets, what's an imperfect labor market to you and what makes it perfect? Somebody who's not familiar with terms like that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the way I would think about it is that, you know, an imperfect labor market is one um, which recognizes the fact that it's, uh, you know, it takes time, perhaps money as well, to find jobs or or, or good jobs. So mm-hmm. that you know, for people getting jobs and losing jobs is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that contrast with the economist's ideal of a 
you know, a perfect labour market in which, you know, there are lots of jobs are just like your current one are just freely available. Right. If you lose this particular one, no big deal. You just get another one, yeah. um, you know, and things like that. Of course, the average person, when you explain it like that, thinks, what, why are these economists so mad to, you know, <laughs> to think that labour markets could ever be perfect? Of course, jobs are a big deal. You get paid for <laughs> yeah. you know, saying that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, that's interesting. So immediately, one thing that you just brought up that came to my mind is like in the product market, um, say like bananas, I buy bananas all the time. But in the labor market, I might only have a handful in my entire life. Is that already just that one little dimension of it? an important part of where we start moving moving away from the ideas of perfect labor markets? Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a great example. I mean, one statistic I often quote is that there's a sort of British survey and the last question in the survey is an open-ended question. Say something that, you know, what important happened to you last, uh, last year? Yeah. And basically, you know, people talk about, you know, births, marriages, divorce, deaths and so on. But after those things, the next thing they talk about are jobs. It's about getting job, losing job, getting a promotion. Absolutely nobody says, well, you know what? I used to buy bananas from this grocery store, <laughs> exactly. but I really um, right. now changed. Well, right. I did. And, and yeah, and, and it's a, just a bigger deal in people's life. And I think the fact that people just have a few of them. Right. Um, is testament, you know, to this fact that it's just not that easy to get jobs, well, change jobs. You know, it's weird, though, because you would think the fact that it's a bigger deal would mean that society manages it, you know, devotes more resources to making sure it works better. But it almost seems like you're saying that because the in the number of jobs is shrinking, you know, small over a person's life, something about that is a problem. What is it about that that makes it hard for the markets to manage it well? Um, well, I think it's just, it means that if you're on the, you know, there are two sides to the market, let's say that he's just the worker and, and the employer. And, you know, I think the employer, you know, is interested in, you know, making profits and so on. Um, and they're typically going to have a lot more work. You know, a typical employer is going to have experience of dealing with a lot more workers over the course of, you know, their life than a worker is having experience of dealing with employers. Right. And so there's just we end up with that sort of an imbalance of an imbalance of power um, in, in imba sort of essentially imbalance of power. Mm. And, you know, so sort of my view is that. It, you know, we need the sort of some kind of intervention in the labour market in order to deliver an appropriate balance of power between workers and, and their employers. And if we don't do that, uh, we're going to end up in a situation in which employers have got too much power. And I think the origin of that in my own mind of why that was important was, you know, going back to what was happening in the 1980s. This is a period in of you know Reagan in the US, Thatcher in the UK. What we're seeing is you know sweeping away of lots of labour market regulations um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and and the view that 
you know, the market is sufficiently competitive in itself to protect the interests of workers. Mm. And I thought at the time that that was, that was sort of going too far in the opposite, you know, in, in, in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, but also wanted to have some intellectual underpinnings for the argument to saying why this was going too far. Right, right. So it's interesting because you're, 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 you're saying that the, the problem in labor markets, or at least one of the problem in labor markets is when they are imperfect, is when they are not perfect. And you explicitly link that to competition. As opposed to there being like, but what sometimes the solution in these labor markets is to create with unions an additional kind of, it's like, you know, I guess like what I was going to say is that one of the solutions to there being imperfections in the labor market has historically been the union. And the union almost is a shrinking of the some sort of natural competition happening between the workers. And yeah. so it's interesting. So it's it's not always immediately intuitive, I think, to a non-labor economist why that might be a solution if in fact the problem is the problem is a lack of competition. It almost seems like it's going in the wrong direction. But that can you sort of provide a little bit of your reaction to that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a very you know, interesting perspective. I mean, I think some of these frictions in labor markets, um, you know, they're sort of, you know, if we were, we would like to just magic them away, that would perhaps be the first best outcome. But I think they're sort of, you know, they're sort of that's, you can maybe do some things to lessen them, but they're sort of an inevitable feature of the world, really. Right, right. Um, and so you're sort of looking at sort of what you might call broadly sort of second best type policies. Right. And so unions are just, I think of as just potentially having countervailing power to the power of employers. It stops, it limits the ability of employers to play workers off against, um, against each other. Yeah. And so that can, you know, achieve a more appropriate balance a balance of power, but there are risks with that as well. I mean, I would always, you know, I'd always think of it as you're trying to find the appropriate balance of power. You can go too far in one direction. Mm-hmm. You can go too far in the, you know, the other direction. Right, right. This concept of power, you know, the, the this is, I guess, kind of like, I'm, I'm kind of dance, dance, dancing around a, a couple of questions and conversations I want to have with you, but this, this, this idea of power, it, it seems like outside of economics, with people outside of being a PhD economist, there is a large part of the population that is extremely concerned about power in labor markets. But they may or may not mean the same thing as what you mean by it. And I was curious, you know, if you wouldn't mind elaborating a little bit about what exactly does power mean to you? And if is that the exact is that sort of the you know should should a person think about that uh, when they read anonymous you know is that is that like a, a is that jargon for an economist or is it really like what it sounds like? Yeah, I mean, I th- I'm not sure I'm going to give a very good answer to that because I always struggle. I mean, I use the word I have used the word you know a few minutes ago, but I always struggle to have a you know a very precise um, definition of it. I mean, I, you know, I think there, there are different ways of expressing it and coming at it, which is sort of more or less 
you know, e equivalent, you know. So if you think, well, just because it's hard for workers to, um, you know, change jobs, um, this gives the employer the ability to, um, you know, to not pay them, you know, their marginal products. They can get away with paying them a bit less. Yeah. Now, you know, is that sort of power? It's it sort of is, it is in a sense, but it, it's also, I, I, I think I'm giving a really incoherent answer. No, no, no. This is exactly what I'm kind of wanting to, to hear you say. Yeah, we use this word power and oftentimes it's kind of encompassing nuanced kind of theoretical mechanisms that, that are of different types, right? Like paying below marginal products is one, one type of thing we're talking about. It's not, it's not the only thing though. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I would, you know, I, if I was trying to explain these ideas to a non-economist, I would often kind of use the word power yeah. in, in that sense, because I feel that sort of connects with it, but I'm not sure that in my, you probably could be able to prove me wrong, but in, in sort of my academic works, I think I probably don't use that word. So, I, well, I'd use the word market power, you know, yeah, that they have market power, meaning they have the ability to pay, uh, you know, that they're, they have the ability to pay below marginal products in that yeah. sense, in that which is a more precise technical sense. Yeah. And this matters, you know, the way that I kind of tell my students is, is these things really matter a great deal because a huge number of Americans or of, of people in the world, I mean, yeah, just like the entire world and throughout all of time, they, they get goods and services through wages, not capital. That's why all this matters is because, you know, ultimately most people are getting the things they need to live the lives they want to live through labor income. And so these kinds of what seem like technical matters have massive consequences for overall human well-being. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. And, and you sort of my view is that if our economic you know, system doesn't deliver, um, you know, outcome, you know, good outcomes for workers, because most and most people depend on labor income, you know, that. It, we shouldn't be that surprised if people start, you know, looking around for alternative economic systems, exactly. start voting for people, you know. And, and of course, we know there's nothing in a market economy which guarantees that it's going to, you know, deliver good outcomes for everybody. And that, again, is, you know, part of the we need to be steering the economy to find there's an appropriate balance so that we sort of go up together. You know, sometimes we may have to go down together, but we're doing it sort of together. Yeah. Okay. So, so now I want to kind of ask a little bit of just uh, about the sort of what you've observed over your career. And just kind of briefly say one thing, you know, you, you if you said to someone, I one time said to someone, I, I said, you know, it, it seems like monopsony is getting a lot of attention right now. When I was in graduate school, I never heard about monopsony. Now I hear about it all the time. And that person then said, well, monopsony is very old. It goes back to Joan Robinson's work, you know, a long, long time ago. And I know that's true, but sociologically, it seems like there was not nearly as open-mindedness about it in the past at all times as it is right now. So like, just for instance, you know, after 
uh, papers in the mid 90s, some of which you wrote and Cardin Kruger also wrote on the minimum wage. Um, uh, the Nobel laureate James Buchanan wrote an op ed piece in The Wall Street Journal uh, when President Clinton was uh, president. When there was a debate about the federal minimum wage, people were citing all of these minimum wage studies that had not found any effect on of the minimum wage on employment. And he called people that believed these things camp following whores. He literally, yeah, it's a quote he put in the in the op ed. I can't even. I mean, I don't doubt that someone would write that now, but it, but it's like you know, it it just seems that many of us know that's absurd. That uh, the 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 amount of broad support that exists now that there are that there are as mixed evidence at best for something like minimum wage having negative employment effects. And at worst, no evidence um, uh, seems to be something everyone sort of is aware of. So I was kind of curious, like, if you had to just kind of tell the story of of the uh, the story of imperfect labor markets as a topic in economics, what what has it been? Has it been a roller coaster, or has it been just like? Does it just look? Do I have a wrong impression? I think there was a sort of period in the 1950s um, when the idea of imperfect competition in labour markets and employer market power was quite prominent among people like Lloyd Reynolds and things like that. I think then within labour economics, the sort of Chicago sort of approach came to be dominant, which, you know, this is not a very Chicago type, um, type idea. Uh, really. And then in the, you know, by the time we get to the 1980s, the idea is that, um, you know, the sort of consensus is basically the workers have too much power, probably. Right. right, um, right. You know, so worrying about employer market power seems really sort of perverse. Or right. Almost. right, right, right. Um, and then, you know, I got into it because I suddenly, you know, I, you know, I just, because I thought, well, why isn't there, you know, it's, it's such a simple idea that if you pay a higher wage, you find it easier to recruit and retain workers. It seems so obvious. Why isn't this sort of the way we think about labour markets? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so that's when I started to work on it. But I think it sort of fell initially on, on stony ground. There were some people who were sort of supportive, you know, David Card, Alan Kruger, Orly Ashenfeld were kind of supportive. But it fell on stony ground because our labour markets, you know, um, around the 2000s seem to be doing pretty well. We're talking about the great moderation, the view that, you know, a market economy can't really go seriously wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that sort of was what the sort of way people were thinking about things. So I think monopsony really only took off, really, sort of post-financial crisis. Mm. People, which obviously it's not about labour markets, but obviously was rather a dent in the view that markets can do sort of no wrong. And and then, you know, concerns about, particularly in the US, um, rising wage inequality, falling share of labour, falling real wages, or the best stagnant real wages for the average American, that suddenly it's finding a more fertile, you know, fertile ground in which people start thinking, well, maybe there's there's something in it. So that's sort of 
big picture how I would see the sort of the ups and downs. So at the moment it's on and up, yeah. um, you know, but I'm old enough to have seen ups and downs in lots of things. So, you know, who knows, it might have a bit of a down at some point. Yeah, sure. Oh, that's really interesting. So even though it's kind of experiencing some sort of broader resurgence, it, it just things like the economic circumstances of, of like, you know, like the great recession, which isn't about, it's about housing markets, if anything, or finance actually makes people now go back to, oh, well, maybe, maybe markets really are uh, going to, maybe markets are not designed as well as we think they need to be. And let's re back, let's look double back at monopsony or something like that. Yeah. So I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's sort of my sort of view how it is. And just as I sort of got into labor economics in the 1980s, because these issues seem, you know, labor market problems seem the biggest problems of the day. I think that, you know, people are attracted to this now um, because, you know, it seems to be speak to the problems of, of the current time. Right. I mean, I think there's also a, a generational thing. I did think an mm. older generation, I did find people, you know, many people who simply told me, well, this cannot be right, you know, there is no, employers have no monopsony power. Right. And yet, you know, when you would say, well, okay, well, point me to the studies that show that. Right. Because this view that, you know, higher wages make it easier to recruit and retain, yeah. you know, that seems kind of sensible. Um, you know, they wouldn't be able to study, you know, there is no literature right. claiming that. But so I think the younger generation kind of rather more receptive to yeah. new, new ideas. Well, you know, there's this interesting speech that Card gave at Michigan in 2014 about the history of the empirical micro model. And he talks about the connection that, you know, applied people and it's primarily labor, but it's like the they've had with theory, the theoretical model. And he talks about it as going, he calls it the approximating model stage. And I interpreted it as more like mensur regressions connected to like, you know, Becker. And it was kind of like, Theoretical models dominate the thinking and the estimation is pretty straightforward. We would by today say, you know, it doesn't solve any identification problem, but like, it's just like regress wages onto education and potential experience. And then it kind of diverges. And then it's like, you've kind of got this more structural approach where the economic theory is really a key part of estimation, even in very complicated ways. Structural assumptions are built in and you can recover certain kinds of parameters. And then there's like this other route of the, the design-based approach. And the, the thing that about the design-based approach is it really is very focused on physical treatment assignments being kind of the, the main thing, not the theoretical model. The theoretical model kind of guides people's interests, helps them think about the world kind of questions. But ultimately, estimation is like random, you know, focuses on randomized treatment assignments or whatever. Well, so, you know, it makes me think that generational piece, if you're the, the less connected you are to the theoretical model and the more connected you are with physical treatment assignments and data, I wonder if something like a letter that James Buchanan writes, which is basically clearly just driven by 
a model approach. He's just got, he's just saying this is not possible. He's never run a regression in his life. I bet, you know, he's like, this is physically, this is not possible. Water cannot run upstream. Right. And so uh, I just wonder if some of this is because models in general don't play the same role in, in, in these newer generations of economists, the way it did 50 years ago. Yeah, and no, I think you're right there. I mean, I think that all of that sort of empirical turn or whatever you want to call it was incredibly important in, in this. And, you know, the Card-Kruger work in particular on the minimum wage, mm-hmm. um, you know, was, you know, yes, you needed a sort of a different, you know, in, you have to ask the question, how is this possible? You needed a different kind of, uh, a different kind of model. I mean, I find the Buchanan thing a bit odd because, I mean, you know, he says, well, this is not, you know, possible. This is like saying, repeat, you know, the laws of gravity don't hold. I think it's something like that. I mean, he did know about imperfect competition. So, I mean, he he, he must, I can't help feeling, um, I understand that he thought the markets were pretty competitive. But, you know, I think he knew that there were sort of economic models which, of course, didn't have that conclusion, um, yeah. but he just didn't. The, the problem is that as soon as you admit that, you know, a theory is in a way an explanation of X. And the trouble is you would quite quickly add up, you know, a long list of, oh, here's another explanation of X and yet another one, another theory and so on. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, we want to know what is the explanation of X. Right. And at that point, theory just cannot help us really dis- you know, distinguish us, yeah. distinguish between these. Yeah. It's got to be empiric- empiricism. Yeah, 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 right. As opposed to, so it's interesting. So, so then empiricism is, is in, that's interesting because, you know, that now it, it's very hard to imagine that will, that will ever revert back to anything other than a deeply saturated empirical approach to economics. Not that theory won't be relevant, but that like, I don't anticipate a world in which people just stop looking at data and stop taking, you know, estimating various important parameters seriously, but there has been fads and there have been like hurting in these academic topics. And, and what I, I think is interesting about you and your personal story is, is you don't seem to get caught up in the fads it's, it's like just kind of looking at you you look like this just steady economist who's just kind of stayed on point stayed on topic chase after a broad set of topics and not really like you know kind of not going you don't seem to be being you don't seem to be a guy that 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 walks in a herd that's kind of a fad guy. And I just was curious, is that accurate? Would people say that Alan Manning kind of, you know, marches to his own drummer? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty established. I mean, I've been a full professor at LSE for 25 years, so I'm pretty establishment. Um, I do have a very serious character flaw, which I, if, if everybody agrees with me, I think I must be doing something wrong. So, <laughs> uh, um, you know, so that probably that character flaw maybe is a little bit of this. So, you know, now 
people seem more enthusiastic about monopsony. I find that a little bit hard to. Uh, so now you're like you're writing you're writing camp following horde op-ed to yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the Arsenal newspaper. Um, <laughs> you know, so I I I I don't know. I mean, I've always been. I I think what. I, I've sort of always tried to do is to think about ultimately, you know, economics is about, you know, changing, changing the world. You know, it's not about it. it right. It's only academics who ever read your work. Mm. Um, that in some sense is a, that's a sort of a failure. Now I know that, you know, you can influence other academics, some academics and they influence other academics, but at the end of the day, there's got to be some path out into the, to the world right, for me. Right. And I think a lot of these fads that you're talking about are often sort of academics yeah. interested in seeking the approval of really of other academics. Totally, totally. Yes, yes. But, you know, I feel like, Alan, that, that's this thing too that I don't feel like there's a clear set of norms that are kind of given to us as young people because if we begin to advocate for policy as academic economists, it's usually, it's oftentimes this uncomfortable thing that is presented to people, which is like, our job is to be completely neutral. Our job is just to be very objective. We do not advocate for policy. We are just purely scientists. But when you're talking about making the world a better place, I don't see how you can't ever, I, I don't see how you're supposed to not share what you think. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I, I don't think of this as a, the, mo the view of us as sort of unbiased scientists just trying to understand the world. I mean, even, un I mean, understanding the world, what's the purpose of understanding the world? It's To me, it's so we can understand where it's working well, where it's not working well, and hopefully, you know, tweak it a bit to make it work a bit, um, a bit better. Right. Um, and, you know, that's essentially, you know, policy. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so you have a new paper at the Journal of Human Resources uh, that I wanted to talk a little bit about for the last uh, little time I have with you. The Urban Wage Premiums in Imperfect Labor Markets with three co-authors, Hirsch, John, or is it Jan? Jan, I think. Jan Overfincher. Uh, before we dive into the paper, I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about your co-authors on this project and how did the four of you sort of come together to work on this? Um, so Boris Hirsch, actually, I've known for quite a long time. He was, when he was a graduate student, he wasn't at LSE, but he spent some time at LSE. He was uh, one of the people who was sort of interested in monopsony rather uh, before kind of most um, most people. Okay. Um, you know, so um, so I, I sort of with him go back um, quite a long way, although this is actually the first paper that we'd written uh, together. Okay. Um, and then he's, you know, has co-authors with um, the other two, Elka and Michael. Um, and they're sort of, you know, either this uses sort of administrative data from Germany. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're people who know an awful lot about this administrative data and, and so on. Right, right. So this, so how did this project come about? So tell me the, tell me the beginnings of this project and, and you know, the recruiting of the co-authors. I mean, I, this particular project, I was, I was, a, I, I was a bit 
bit bit late to um, it really. So the three of them had um, you know written something. So the the basic idea of it is that we know that we um, you know c- cities basically wages are higher than in uh, rural areas or towns or rural areas. And why is that? And the standard explanation for that is that that is, um, you know, due to higher productivity, perhaps from agglomerations in cities. And this was the sort of argument that actually one of the reasons is that labour markets um, in cities are actually more competitive. So that, um, you know, because there are more employers over, you know, if you think of a worker living in a particular place, they're going to have a greater number of employers within a feasible commuting distance. And and so that is going to give them more choice and more choice means that that market is going to be more competitive. So that was the sort of um, the basic idea. Yeah. But, but so this, this urban wage premium that has been well-documented for a long time. Is that right? Yes. So, I mean, you know, so that is sort of nothing, you know, nothing sort of new, really. And it's more about why, why this is. Right. Is it changed over time? And is it really like Um, a phenomenon? I I think. Over every country? That's a good question. And you're going to put me on the spot here, which I'm not sure if I'm going to give you the right answer. I, I, I think that it's probably kind of gone up a bit. You know, if you think in the U.S. of, wage gaps between the sort of Bay Area and New, New York between, right. And, right. you know, um, sort of middle America and in, in the UK between London and the rest of the country. I think those wage differentials in nominal terms so right. Right. have risen. But, you know, it's funny because I would say uh, a wage, an urban wage premium, I could think of lots of reasons that the cities have higher wages. I could think, uh, Cost of living is higher in those cities. So to get them there, they have to pay them more. I could think the kinds of firms are different there. I could think, uh, well, I could even go to this Moretti, Enrico Moretti kind of theory about, well, you put them all together and all of a sudden something's happening with the productivity of the workers in some kind of complicated way. But it seems like you're not, you're saying it's like, it's something different than those those three things, right? I mean, we're, we're not saying that none of those things are relevant. Right. We're just sort of saying they're not they're not the whole story. There's, there's whole other story. Uh, other effects as well. So you're saying um, there's this. So I, I mean, I think it's you know because these cities are expensive in terms of housing, you sort of have to pay workers higher wages to you know to locate there. Right. Um, but then you have to think, well, why do firms locate there? Because right. they're costs of land are higher, the wages they have to pay the workers are higher. Yeah. There's got to be something on the other side of the uh, something on the other side of the equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so you know, there's not either some sort of magic source in terms of higher productivity. This is, you know, a location that's particularly good for you know producing stuff or that there's sort of spillovers, you know, as you mentioned, those kind of ideas. Um, whereas our idea is just that it can be that if, if these markets are more competitive, um, they tend to attract the more productive firms into them uh, as well. It becomes so if you're a productive, very productive firm, you um, can actually be a tr- you're, you're going to want to be a relatively large firm and you're going to 
um, then want to locate in a in a place where there's a ready supply of labor, which is a, a sort of city. Yeah, yeah. So if it was a perfect labor market all across Germany versus your hypothesis that there are these imperfections related to cities, what would the urban, would there be an urban wage premium if it was perfectly competitive across the whole country? I mean, there might be if, if there are these, if, you know, there are productivity differences across locations, which are just sort of fundamental, you would then see, um, you would see, you know, activity being concentrated in areas that are more productive. Yeah. But, you know, there's a congestion effect as you get everybody piling in there. Basically, you know, there's some sort of congestion in terms of land and so on. And so in the end, you end up with unequally distributed economic activity. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think it is the case that, you know, a perfectly competitive view of the of the world c- can explain why we see agglomeration um, mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you think that so your finding is uh, you're, you're finding that there does appear to be an urban wage premium that is at least partly driven by greater density of firms in those areas, that that itself is the causal effect, not not enhancing a productivity, but actually competition between more firms. Yeah. So what, what we do in this paper, we take a measure of how competitive is our labor markets Um, and sort of sort of one of the measures we use for example is the fraction of new recruits that previously had a job are are coming directly from another employer and the basic idea there is that you know competition for workers is biggest when you've got two employers facing off competing for the same worker Mm -hmm. if you're recruiting somebody from uh, who hasn't currently got a job you're not you know you're not directly competing with another employer for that worker's services. Mm. Um, so we show that in the sort of denser cities uh, that actually what you see is a higher fraction of recruits come from um, come from employment, uh, from previously in employment. We also show that, um, you know, that uh, the quit rate is more sensitive to the wage you pay in urban areas than in uh, other areas. And these are sort of two measures of how competitive labor markets are. And then we show that those two measures of competitiveness are also correlated with the level of wages. Mm. So, so if I'm a policymaker and I read this paper and I believe you, what, what exactly should, what kinds of policies does this imply? Because we can't make every place a city. So there must be some kind of implicate some sort of policy implication that this generalizes to that may not be necessarily obvious to a lot of people. Yes. So I think, um, you know, some of this I think of as, as being quite, you're never going to be able to make it all go away through policy. Right. But part of it is might be things like, um, you know, commuting and information. Commuting is important for workers. I mean, one of the things that always surprises me about labor markets is how on average, how short people's commutes are. And what that means is that they're basically considering, um, uh, you know, a rather small number of employers. Yeah. And so things that make commuting kind of easier um, would make areas, you know, 
the labour market more competitive. Mm. Um, it might also be the case that information, you know, better information about for workers makes things better. Well, so then, you know, with this rise in work from home driven by COVID and the availability of the technology we're using right now, Zoom, it would seem like that is incredibly relevant for imperfect labor markets because now all of a sudden, I mean, I can live in North Dakota and I can switch between firms that are all over the place, never have to relocate, never commute. All of a sudden, the actual labor market seems like it weirdly enough thickens because of these reductions in frictions. But do you think that's true? I mean, I think that's a good question. I think there's probably quite a lot potentially going on there. I mean, the first thing is, I think, really, whether people are going to be uh, the people, even if people are working from home more, it's basically how often you're going into the office. Even if your employer says, well, you only have to come into the office one day a week, that's right. going to, you, you might have a longer commute, but you're not going to be able to live in North Dakota right. and, and work in California. Yeah. Um, you know, so then the effect is, you know, even though people are working from home 80% of the time, the actual impact is is a lot smaller on yeah. people's choices. Sure. Um, I mean, I think the, the, you know, the other thing is about how it um, affects sort of information and things, because, you know, you, if you're working from home, you may well be more isolated. You know, every conversation on Zoom has to have a purpose. Uh, you can't just, you know, have a casual chat as you would meeting someone in the corridor. Right. And it may be, you know, workers become more atomized and, um, you know, their, their co-workers are actually important sources of information about the labor market. Right. And that actually becomes more difficult. So yes. I think it's sort of the, the effect you say is a possible effect, but I, I kind of, you know, would think it might, I, I wouldn't say it's inevitable that it goes that way. And yeah. um, I mean, I think we have examples like when, you know, provision of a job information, vacancies and so on, well, all went online. Yeah. People say, well, this is going to reduce frictions in the labour market a lot. Right. Um, and it's not really clear that it did quite that way. And, you know, one reason is that although the amount of information went up hugely, our ability to process information didn't really go up. And yeah. so, you know, it has much less effect than you think it would. Well, even the fact is, I think, too, the selection of work from home doesn't necessarily select upon the least well off either. Sure. And, you know, for sure, you know, they're going to be all these personal service jobs and so on. You can't work from home. You can't work from home. Yeah. You can't work from home bartending or something like yeah. that. It's harder to get the drinks to them. Uh, well, so um, uh, let's see. I had one more question. You know, I was going to just end here. It seems like one uh, in light of this uh, urban wage premium, uh, it seems like one of the most significant monopsonies or the mo one of a, a, it seems like a substantially imperfect labor market that I don't hear a lot about uh, is the university. Uh, yeah. Because um, for so many reasons, it seems like there are these really intense frictions associated with changing because of it's being in this two-sided, uh, you know, it, and even worse when you've got partners that are also academics, you've got all these incredible problems of like matching. And I was just was curious, you know, 
it seems like academic labor markets are defined by imperfection and monopsony, and uh, especially might even be intensified in these geographic areas. That not always, but I mean, people can move between Harvard and MIT, obviously. But you know, it doesn't seem like that's because of this whole idea of lateral moves and so forth. Many cities that you might not be able to be moved to move to another place in the city. And I just was curious, you know, do do you get the sense that the monopsony issues are are intensified with universities or is it, you know, maybe maybe it's not as bad? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, the, the person who's written the most about this is sort of Mike Ransom, who's a BYU, and he actually was writing about monopsony sort of, I think, even before I was, really. Mm. So, And, you know, he, he has a, a paper which shows that in, in, in most jobs in the labour market, the long, longer your job tenure, um, the higher the wage that you get. Uh, but actually, in academic jobs, it's, it, it's the opposite. And he suggests this is because the universities have, you know, people are more mobile earlier in their career and, and so on. Mm. But once you've got people, um, you know, settled, their families, you know, partner jobs and things and not many, you know, and, and moving jobs means, you know, moving your whole life right. in many cases, um, you know, they, the universities have a lot of power over those, yeah. um, those workers. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, so I think, I, I mean, I think the more general point is that, you know, sometimes people ask me, do I think there's more monopsony power in higher skill or lower skill labor markets? Right. And I actually don't have very strong views on that. I think, you know, the consequences of, workers you know being paid less than their marginal product are more serious for lower skill workers i find it hard to you know you know for the average economics professor to get terribly um you know I, i'm not going to be putting my energy into making yeah. the academic labor economy academic economist totally. labor market more competitive exactly yeah 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 if we're going to be focused on this it should be a group of people for whom the they're at some meaningful, meaningful margin of livelihood. I agree completely. Well, it has been such a nice uh, chance to get to, to talk to you for this last hour. Um, uh, um, before I go, uh, I guess I just would be curious what, you know, what your, what, what you, what you're most, uh, most optimistic about, you know, going forward, whether it's the labor markets or, you know, or something else? Um, well, it's obviously a pretty difficult time at, at the moment for lots of different reasons. And in some ways, it reminds me of, you know, when I was graduating in the early 1980s, that, mm. um, that was a very difficult time. And I think we have, you know, had the mindset then that everything was getting worse. Every recession was worse than the previous recession and the world was just going to hell. And it was, it was, it was very easy to be very pessimistic about the direction of travel. And then we went through a period when actually things seemed to get better. So these things come and go. So I, you know, I feel that one shouldn't, you know, one should be optimistic that, you know, things can get better, but it's not going to happen without, 
human action basically you know it's up to us to make things better and then you know we should all try to do what we can to be part of that in our own small way yeah yeah thank you so much alan it's nice to meet you and i I wish you best of luck in uh all that you're just you continue to do okay well thank you very much and you know yeah and i love what you're doing with this i think it's um i think it's great as well so thanks very much for having me thanks